Michael on the Michael on the video uh, told me a little while ago that through our partnership they were able to feed and to provide meals, 60,000 meals uh, in, in one quarter. And it's just an incredible work that really speaks to their efficiency as an organization. Happy to partner with them for several years now. Um, hey, this morning, though, we are in part three of a, of a four-part series called Rooted. Remember, we put the graphic of the, the redwood tree in Redwood National Park on the screen, and we say, how is it that God grows these profoundly deep roots of faith inside of us? And, and we took a look at this, and we're kind of flipping through the life and the times of David, King David, even long before, especially long before he became king. Remember, part one of this series, we said, you know, there's uh, four different soils, I guess you could say, that God grew grows this deep faith in us. The first soil was simply the soil of time. We, we said, we, we noticed that between the time when God anointed David as the next king of Israel and the time that David actually became king of Israel, there was something like, like 20 years, like a couple of decades spanning that time. And we say, listen, you may be tempted to believe a lie that that waiting time is wasted time. However, however, when it comes to following after and pursuing God, the first soil we have to understand in growing deep roots simply is that it takes time. Then we flip the story to a fun one, David and Goliath, right? Spoiler alert, David wins, you know, in case you're, you're looking to go back and listen to that one online. Uh, but we said, you know, the, the flip, the, the trick to the story is that David didn't actually beat Goliath on the battlefield. See, I believe that David beat Goliath long before the battlefield. David beat Goliath in the shepherd's field, David beat Goliath long before they ever met in the valley. David beat him when he was out there tending his father's sheep and just watching them and praying to his God in heaven. And it's there that he developed his dependency on his Savior that drove him to battle in the first place. Remember the kind of takeaway from some of that is to say, is that intimacy with God now defeats giants tomorrow. Intimacy with God today defeats giants tomorrow. The second soil is intimacy with God. Uh, today, we look at this third soil that God uses to grow, uh, to grow this deep roots of faith inside of us, and it's serving. Now, you just, even as I say that, right, as uh, getting out there and serving, maybe when you want to be somewhere else, maybe especially when you want to be like anywhere else, right? Some of you had had just awesome serving opportunities. Maybe they were here at Encounter. I hope so. We love that. You know, awesome serving opportunities are when you, when you show up and, and everything's laid out clearly and organized for you and you go out and you, you do whatever it is that you were asked to do and you knew exactly what that was. And by the time, you know, an hour or two goes by, it's, it's like you can almost feel that the needle of the world being changed, like, started to push, started to move. Just an incredible sensation. This message is not talking about that. <laughs> you don't need a sermon if that's been your experience so far. All right, that probably was your sermon. That probably spoke more about God and His grace than anything I could say from this stage. This is for those times when you show up and you want to be just anywhere else. I remember when I was, a, when I was in pastor training school, it was a grad school and seminary, and, and had the opportunity to serve at a clothing bank downtown. And I remember the volunteer application. It's like, do you have any special skills? And it's like, oh man, I'm in like pastor school. I got all kinds of special skills. I minored in biblical Greek, right? Like I know three quarters of, of Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament was written in. I've taken classes on biblical exegesis and, and hermeneutics. I mean, I've got special skills coming out of my ears. And all of that qualified me to take out the garbage. 
It didn't even get me to the point of like sorting clothes. It was like, no, 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 let's handle, let's like save that for the talented people. Um, you can just, we've got a few things. Let me just spill something. Go clean that up for me, would you? Get back to work. You know, there's times in your life where you're serving and you're going, listen, I would like to be somewhere else, maybe anywhere else. Doesn't have to be, here's the thing, doesn't have to be a volunteer opportunity. Some of you have gone to work in places and in environments where you're, where you're working and you believe in the vision, you believe in the mission of the organization, whether it's non-profit, for-profit, doesn't matter. It's, it's, you, you can stand behind the work that you do. You just can't stand the person that you do it for. Like you show up to work, right? And, and like the media kind of person reporting above you, his, uh, it's, it's, it's just kind of like uh, demanding and mean and, and has this like really unacceptably high bar that's just so difficult to attain, and you show up, and it's not like God is calling you somewhere else, right? You believe that he's having you here. It's just, why is it so incredibly hard? We'd just rather be anywhere, anywhere else. Some of you are stay-at-home dads and moms, and you know what this is like exactly, because you're going, yes, the person that I work for is also mean and demanding and has an unprecedentedly high bar, right? That sounds like my four-year-old, exactly. And it's not like God is calling me elsewhere. I get, I'm his mom or I'm his dad. It's just, I want to get out of here. I would rather be doing this just anywhere but here. You know, for you, for any of you who have just asked yourself that like, question, like, 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 why now? Why here? Why am I serving? Had needing to serve in this capacity. Friends, for you, there is the life of David. We're going to go to this story. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're kind of just going through the story a chapter at a time. The Bibles, by the way, in the chairs in front of you, this isn't related to anything, but I just want to say in the last like eight, ten weeks or so, we've given away something like 50 Bibles. Um, so this is it's so cool. I love that. So there's Bibles in front of you. You know, look up 1 Samuel 18. The words are on the screen as well. But if you want to keep that, take it home. You know, if you don't have one or if you just like ours better, go ahead because apparently lots of people are. And we think that's awesome. Okay, 1 Samuel 18 just starts off, first verse right off the bat. It says, you know, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine. We covered that last week, right? Spoiler, David won. But he, it's not like he just came home immediately from fighting on the battle. It's like he beat Goliath and then that like swept him up in this whirlwind of activity that brought him like all over the region, all over the area. He enlisted in the army and he, he, he was a battle kind of commander on the field. He was going out to these faraway places. He was fighting other tribes, securing, you know, the borders of Israel. It's just an incredible story of David. And he was like hugely skilled at it. Like apparently the shepherd's kid had these like crazy good military strategy brains. This is this wild story. And as, as David continues to, to win these battles, and as David continues to serve, like his stock in the kingdom is like incredibly high. It's going up and up and up and up. And, and Saul is, is like watching this and hating every minute of it. Saul is the, the current king that sits on the throne. And Saul is, is watching this, and he's seeing his son, his firstborn son, Jonathan, become like best friends, you know, BFFs with David. David's best friends with a prince. Uh, Saul says, listen, David, you know, you're so skilled, you're so talented, I want to keep you in my corner. David, why don't you marry one of my daughters? And David says, that'd be an honor, you know, to be a son-in-law to the king, right? And then when David goes out to fight a battle, Saul goes ahead and marries his daughter off to some other guy. And David gets back and he doesn't check out. He doesn't leave. It's this incredible story of, that points to the, the, the heart 
of David. He, he gets back after all of this stuff happened. David's stock is on this meteoric rise. Saul is just dropped off, and it gets to this like turning point in the story in the next line where it says that the, when he came back, the women came out from all of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. They're literally dancing in the street celebrating David. And as they dance, they sing, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. What they're doing, you know, they're not upset necessarily that uh, Saul, the people are not upset at, at Saul. They're not expressing their disappointment in Saul. They're just celebrating the heroism of David, that he's going out and he's accomplishing these incredible things. But for Saul... And there's like this deep-seated, maybe insecurity inside of him that like quickly turns into pure and unadulterated jealousy. And as he's listening to everybody dance in the streets, there, there is a hatred that boiled in, maybe in jealousy, steeped in jealousy. There's a hatred inside of Saul that like gets, it creates something nasty and something ugly in him. And, and it finally gets to the point where it starts to spill over. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Um, this is where the story gets interesting. Verse 10, it says, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 9, it says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. Probably an understatement. Yeah. Uh, quite a bit. They have, crea- they have credited David with tens of thousands, he, saw, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? This is a good question. <laughs> Verse 9, and from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Uh, you can kind of see what's happening. Saul knows one thing, and he's pretty sure of another thing. Uh, Saul's got a long history by this time of being king. He's made some moves that have displeased God in a huge way. Saul knew that it would have that effect. Samuel, who's the prophet slash kingmaker, God's mouthpiece, Samuel comes to Saul one time and he goes, Saul, because of your extreme, extreme um, disobedience, so God has removed his presence from you. God has removed his spirit of like, protection from you. Uh, God has removed his spirit of anointing from you. God has just like pulled back from you, Saul. You know, pretty soon you're not going to be the king of the kingdom anymore. That's the thing that Saul knows. What he doesn't know is like who the next king is going to be. But as the people are now out in the streets singing and dancing of David slaying his tens of thousands, he's pretty sure... <laughs> that David is the next one in line. So when it says uh, Saul kept a close eye on him, we kind of start to piece together what that means. Okay, next line. This is where it gets really interesting. It says, the next day, verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Did I say interesting? I meant weird. (laughs) This, uh, the evil spirit came from God on Saul. This is something that um, probably ought to make us uh, deeply, deeply uncomfortable. 
The, the thought of, of something, you know, it says evil, but remember Hebrew has like, you know, about a hundredth as many words as English does. So like other people kind of translate this a little bit differently. They, they say something like, you know, like an injurious spirit, just a nasty, it was a bad spirit came on Saul. The word bad has a moral sense, evil, it's just got all kinds of other stuff. But, but like this negative thing, this bad, this bad spirit, injurious spirit came on Saul. Those two words that get me from God. What makes me uncomfortable and what maybe should make you uncomfortable about this is that the spirit came from God. Now, a lot of people try to like get God off the hook in that and say, well, maybe he didn't necessarily come from God. Maybe God just like allowed it to happen, which is different than causing it to happen. Friends, let's get on the same page here, all right? Because if you're going to be here and you're going to worship at Encounter, like you got to know kind of what comes off from the stage in a, like a regular fashion. I know, I don't think this is made to make you feel comfortable, like at all, any of us. Because when you believe, as I believe, when you believe that, that God is omnipotent, that God is like fully in charge and in control, that when, when God is all-powerful, like there is a very thin line <laughs> between what God allows to happen and what God causes to happen. And that, that ought to make us all deeply and profoundly uncomfortable with the things that happen in our life. But it might not make God a bad guy. You know, as long as he can put it together in, my, in the end. If you, if you are running out across the street and you stub your toe on the way, you hate the experience of a possibly bleeding or broken toe. But if a giant semi roars by that you, that you weren't in front of because of the stubbed toe, that toe saved your life. It may hurt like crazy. But man, are we just, thank you. You know, thank you for that experience, right? You know, it's up to God, not me, right? Uh, Isaiah, he says, hey, God's ways are not our ways, right? It's his ways are just high above earth below. His ways so much better than our ways. And that's a good thing. It's up to God in the end, to be able to justify, not even to us, but to himself, to say, listen, all of this harm that happened, all of this bad, all of this nastiness that, that happened on earth, I'm going to put it together. I'm going to put it together in something beautiful. I'm going to piece it all. Everything is going to have its place. This, friends, remember, is a word that we put on the screen a few weeks ago now. We said the Bible has a specific word for this. It's called redemption. When God takes something jagged and nasty and he makes something beautiful come out of it. At this point in the reading, at this point in the story, a, a reader, maybe for the first time, is wondering, I'm sorry, how is it that a shepherd boy is going to somehow cross, cross paths with a king and then maybe become a king himself? Enter this nasty spirit that, that's plaguing Saul as you can't escape it. And David has a way of playing such beautifully soothing music on the lyre. It's, it's like a portable mini harp. And you start to see, oh, I'm starting to get it now. It's, it's like God as this, I love this picture, this incredibly master chess player. And he's like lining up all the pieces to just show us how much his, his redemption could possibly mean. Just what could he bring back from the fringe and save for good. And then we have the next line that just, oh man. Okay, uh, next line says, you know, he was prophesying. This is Saul now. 
Remember, God's spirit like pulled away from him, so it's an interesting word that says he was prophesying in his house. Pause. Prophesying, the word is nevah. The prophesying, it could mean something like ranting and raving. You know, he's just like a lunatic walking around the house and he's complaining about this, that, or the other thing. You know, the world is, you know, everything is conspiring against him. I can't believe this. This David guy, and you know, he's trying to steal the kingdom from me. It's just, even though it's a rant and rave, it doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> like, he's hitting it basically exactly how God called it several chapters ago. But he's in the house, he's ranting and raving like a lunatic. And meanwhile, meanwhile, the next phrase, while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. As he's complaining about David, David's like in the corner <laughs> playing, soothing music to like, to like calm him down. I thought that was interesting. I don't That's nothing in reaction. Um, what you start to see is that Saul is caught in this like deeply, profoundly ironic um, cycle that that, that he has this, this heart inside of him, that the kingdom, uh, that the kingdom is being like ripped away from him, mostly because it's his fault, but that the kingdom is being ripped away from him by David. But the only, the only um, salve, the, the only solution to the hurt inside of him that gives him ease is the music from Dave, David's harp. And then when David comes to the palace to play his harp to soothe Saul's mind, it drives him even that much crazier as he gets like worked up as he sees David. One commentator put it best. Um, he said that, that Saul had unwittingly, he had unwittingly um, caused himself to be dependent on the very drug that will destroy him. And some of you know exactly what that cycle is like, to love something so badly that you know in the end will destroy you, will end you, but you can't help but get away from it. But more on that another time, because the story is about to take a very <laughs> odd turn. It says this in the next line, this is where it gets real interesting. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him. Wait for it, wait for it. Twice. <laughs> this happened twice. I mean, I'm looking, I'm like piecing the story together. Like, wait a second. I don't know what's more bizarre in the story. Number one, that the king, Saul, would, would try to like off his top soldier in the kingdom, or number two, that, that that top soldier, David, would stick around and become the human target practice for King Saul, not once, but twice, and he still stayed there. But that's David, yeah? That's David. That that's David's heart. After he went from being shepherd David to becoming giant slayer David, you know, after he became you know, best friends with the prince David, after he became like, like heartthrob for the princess David, that David, who inspired songs and dancing in the streets, after he did all that, you know, he came back, 
He came back to town and he actually split his time between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. After David was like, you know, nationwide known as as this military hero who saved all the people, he split his time between the shepherd's field, still tending sheep for his dad out of Bethlehem in the pastures. He split his time between there and coming to the palace when the king asked. A murderous, jealous king who tried to kill him twice so far. But the king asked. And the king was God's anointed king. So David, who am I to question God's anointed if the king asked me to do something? Listen, if it doesn't violate God's command, I'm going to do it. So David shows up. Shows up for target practice once, shows up for target practice twice. You know, that's David. I'm just I'm like putting this together with a rooted and how God grows these profoundly deep roots of faith within us that grow up to this incredible redwood tree pointing towards heaven, this monument of faith, putting this together going, you know, how is it that this heart of service that David seemed to, seemed to embody contributed towards becoming the man whose heart was after God's own heart, like his heart beat in rhythm, in lockstep with God's own heart. And I think I can start to understand from the story. You know what? When you're in service like that and you'd rather be somewhere, you'd rather be anywhere else but that. I'm sure he would have, like, give me, the, give me the shepherd's field again. You know, anything but the target practice deal, God. But he shows up again and again. You know what doesn't grow in a soil like that? Pride. You know, when the service that you're employing, when the service that you're in, the work that you're doing, the conversation that you're having, you know, time after time, it's like somebody, it's like you've got a target on your back and somebody is gunning for you. You know what doesn't grow in soil like that? Pride. You know what does grow in a soil like that? As David learned, humility. Because David learned something about, about being a leader, about being a ruler. Is that becoming the leader that God has in store for him to be is not going to be following in the footsteps of King Saul who ruled in like this top-down, oppressive kind of way. David knew and David learned that to become the kind of leader whose heart beats in lockstep with God's own heart, it means leading with humility, leading from the shepherd's field, leading, leading from the, the palace with a target on your back because, hey, I'm here to serve the king. Whatever he needs, including my life, I'd lay it down for him. That's David. If it was me, you can just imagine, if it was me and he threw the spear, I'll pin him to the wall, I'd have picked the spear up. And because I was David, when I threw it back, I wouldn't miss. You know, this thing would be over. And maybe that's why I, the Bible doesn't say that Dirk has a heart that beats after God's own heart. David, David did. As I think the types of things, the, ty- the, the characteristics uh, of service that we value uh, simply don't align up well with the type of service that God seems to value in somebody who, who modeled his life after God. I think of things like you know, decisiveness, right? It's strength. Like, these are the kind of service. You know, when I come into a place to serve, I want to come in and just have it my way and get it done my way. 
You know, I'm uncomfortable with stories of, uh, of people, somebody shared with me earlier about flying to an uh, African country to help build a school. And the first thing that they did, right, as they get their work clothes on and they're ready to step out, and, you know, they might know, few, few of them know how to, how to build houses and it's not a trouble, but they spend the entire first day learning how they build schools. And you're a waste of day just sitting and learning, and that kind of humility, right? Like, that's not what I value so much. I value the kind of, like, big, flashy service, you know, this life to a cause bigger than yourself, like, like, like Captain America, two of you know what I'm talking about, you saw the movie, where, where he's, like, he's on the ship, and he, like, falls off into the big hole in the water, you know, and there's this moment in the movie where you're just like, yes, that is sacrifice for a cause bigger than yourself, and you want to stand up in the theater and sing, like, proud to be an American, you know, like, that's incredible. And then Veterans Day hit a couple days ago. <laughs> you know, Veterans Day, and people are sharing, by the way, thank you, you know, it's a, it's a gift, thank you for sharing those stories of veterans in your life. Maybe you are one, and thank you for your service. But, but stories of veterans who have, who have served and keep on serving, a lot of them. You know, these, these people who, who give, and not just once, ultimately, that, that final, you know, ultimate price, but, but people who make a habit out of service that isn't simply one final act in death, but, but a habit of service ongoing. The gift, not just of death, but the gift of life. Just this ongoing thing. And I think, that's it. That's it. That's the heart that David was after. That says, I'm going to give my death if asked of me, but also my life starting now. It may not be flashy, but that's it. Humility seems to grow there. In the, the story points out, now if I could just you know, be real with you, the story points out a massive hole in our gospel. Like there's something, we've come here to celebrate and we sing and we, and we worship a God who's remarkably big and powerful and, and, we, and we worship a God who has the power to transform our lives with, with his good news, literally what gospel means is good news of, of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Like, like we've come here to celebrate that. Says, Listen, that I love, that's awesome. We're gonna continue doing that. But I have to tell you that the story points out that there's this huge hole that we've almost like completely missed and forgotten about. And that, that whole, you know, maybe some of you know it, um, two major holidays in the Christian faith. Number one, we're coming up to it. What do you got? Christmas, exactly. Your kids are reminding you every other day. They're like, mine. The next major holiday is coming up a little while later. Anybody know it? Easter, exactly. Christmas and e roughly four months later, Easter. Presumably something happened in the middle of Jesus' life or birth and death. But like, we don't have much to celebrate that with, right? The Apostles' Creed, this timeless statement of eternal truths. So, some of you know, the Apostles' Creed goes that, you know, Jesus, he was born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? Like the entire life and ministry of Jesus can be accurately summarized in a comma. <laughs> and we just skip right over it. 
But the first followers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, people that are recording the eyewitness accounts of Jesus says, listen, you have to know something more about simply his, his birth and his death. There's this whole segment right here in the middle called his, his ministry that seemed to be really, really important to him. That Jesus spent time with people. That, that he didn't just give his life in one big flash of his death but he spent his life in service to people. He spent his life um, hanging out with a, a Samaritan woman at a well, hugely looked down on, inviting a tax collector out for lunch. He spent his, his life hanging out with children and women and prostitutes and Roman soldiers and anybody else that was on the outside of the culture that day. Jesus just kept pouring into them and pouring into them. And even by the end of his life, on Thursday, before Good Friday, his death, and Easter Sunday, even on Thursday, he gets down, he takes a towel around his waist, and he washes the feet of his disciples. And even though he spent his life serving them, Peter, you know, like, Peter, St. Peter, Peter says, no, Jesus, you will never, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, do you still not get it? Everything that I've done so far, do you still, you still not get it? Listen, the hole in the gospel, service. And what grows in service is humility. And that's, what, and that's what I'd expect. If I could capture it this way from the book of, of James, um, this is going to be kind of uncomfortable, and I get that. Don't be mad at me, because this is the book of James. This is a brother of Jesus saying this, so I get mad at him <laughs> instead. But from James 1, it says this. It says, religion that God our Father accepts, and I just have to hang on. Religion that God our Father accepts means also that there is, seems to be religion that God our Father does not accept. That ought to scare people coming to church as a regular habit. It does me. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and as faultless. Pure and faultless means something like, like undiluted, right? Like no, nothing added, no water, no ice cubes. It's just straight, you know, the, the hard stuff. Or as I like to think about it, one of these like frozen orange juice containers. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You maybe grew up on these like I did. You know, you open them up and you kind of squeeze them out. And as a kid, I always wanted to like just take a bite out of it like it's orange sherbet or something. I'm pretty sure that would make me like pucker up for a week <laughs> or more. But like the idea of like biting into something that's 100% juice, like it's undiluted, ultra concentrated. Like, you know, if we were to like boil religion as James, the brother of Jesus says, religion that, that's pure and faultless is this. Let me just ask you a question. How would you answer that question? How would you finish that statement? In the, in the culture in which you grew up, how would you answer or how would you finish the sentence of religion that's pure and faultless? I'm thinking for me, I grew up, you know, if we went to church, like if I went to church, I was good. I had a, a culture where we went twice on Sunday. Don't ask me why. If you went to church twice, then you're extra good. If you went to church twice and you brought a Bible for at least one of those, it was like, holy cow, is Dirk a Christian? He's probably going to be a pastor. I get it. I get it now. I see it. I see it. You know, what, what, was, the, what was the thing for you, you know, growing up? If you, 
if you had to finish that, it was a pure religion. It was, it was giving a dime on every dollar. Like, it doesn't get any bigger than that if you tithe. Like, that was it. That was, that was the ultra concentrated, undiluted stuff. You know, was it praying the prayer? Even if you're nine years old, but if you pray that Jesus forgive me, that I'm a sinner, like you're good, get out of hell free card, like forever from now on, fire insurance is yours, you're all set. This is like pure, unadulterated. Would you be curious how James answers this? The right answer is religion that God considers pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Why do I get the impression that those are like one and the same? <laughs> like, there's a, like there's a stream in the world that says, listen, let them take care of themselves. They're going to be fine. Why do I get the impression? Like, like conflating with the world's perspective is neglecting the orphans and the widows in that culture, the completely you know, defenseless ones, the people that are hungry, the people that are imprisoned, as Jesus says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you gave me something to wear. Disciples say, you know, Jesus, when did we see you hungry and give you something to eat? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did, you see, when did we see you check your kids into ch- children's ministry and give them goldfish? Uh, Jesus, when did we see somebody come to church tired and weary from the night before and we offered a freshly brewed cup of coffee? I'm paraphrasing. You get the idea. And Jesus tells you, Jesus tells him, I tell you the truth, what you did to the least of one of these, you did for me. This is the good stuff. This is also the whole in the gospel. When we serve others, we express our love to Christ. I think there's a couple truths. I'll make it quick. Number one, If that's true, that when we serve others, we express our love to Christ. Serving others is an act of faith. A couple truths. Number one is anything that we do is anything that we do is nothing more than a thank you note back to God from what He has done from us. I will I will say this again, I've said this before, that that if there's any like culture of service around this place or that you're sensing from other like Christian organizations, even not us, if there's any culture that says that you ought to serve out of duty or obligation, we might as well like shut the doors right now because we have lost the gospel. There is nothing to be gained from a heart of service for ourselves. We could say, in James' language, if you think this is all about you, you've missed at least half of it. The service that we do is simply an expression of gratitude for what God has already done in our lives, the first truth. And the second one, the second one is if we do, if service is a love, love note back to God, then we don't do it, anybody, we don't do it for anybody except God. Anybody hear the, the parable of the waiting servant? No, of course not. I, just, I totally just made that up. It's uh, Luke 17, 7 to 10. It doesn't have a name, so I just you know, gave it one, um, patent pending. But it's a story that Jesus tells, and he says, um, hey, uh, if, if there's a servant, you know, he's out in the field, and then he comes in from the field, and the master, you know, it's lunchtime, so the master sits down, and the servant says to him, or, and the, Jesus says, does the master say to the servant, hey, why don't you go ahead and sit down, make yourself something to eat, and I'll just kind of come by later. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 he doesn't do that. The master says to the servant, you know, first serve me, and then you can go ahead and make yourself something and sit down after I'm done. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if the servant is doing simply his own duty, why does he expect a thank you? And it's like, oh, Jesus, you've just like taken the wind out of our sails. But I think the truth behind that the truth behind that is like, I know this for me personally, like we get like wrapped up in like the things that we do, we do for other people and not for God. I think this is just a gentle reminder to say, listen, service of humility is not simply about serving other people, the widow and the orphan necessarily, but this is an expression of our faith back to God. When we do things around here, like the, uh, like the doing good campaign that you came in earlier, and we, and we do silly things like, hey, we're going to take a professional photo, and it, it's going to be nice, and you can put it on a Christmas card. Just bring in some shirts for Goodwill, or bring in some food for the pantry, or sign up to, to give blood on November 30th. Like, if any of this that we do, we simply do as an expression of thanks to what God has already done for us. This is the heart of service, the, the soil that God is growing deep faith in us. This is a scary story. Um, I can't ever imagine doing it, but uh, Banning Liebscher, who wrote this book, as a lot of this content comes from, it, he's the founder of Jesus Culture Music, so it's like how, how he loves. Um, they wrote, there's like One Thing Remains, Your Love. There's just a lot of songs, even we sing uh, from Jesus Culture, incredible stuff, but they've got a pretty good band. You know, should go without saying. But Banning went to one of his drummers one time, and he went up to the guy and he said, listen, um, you're pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for being here, by the way. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I love it. It's a passion of mine. And Benning says, I know, I know. This is more about music, though. This is more than just about music, though. He said to the drummer, what if I told you that the best way that you can serve your team isn't, isn't to drum, but what if I told you the best way to serve your team is to work the administrative schedule behind the scenes? Would you still do it? And the guy thinks for a second, he goes, I'm not sure that I would. I mean, my passion is, he's like, yes, there's, but besides your passion, what are you doing? Who are you doing this for anyway? Friends, I have that, that just plagues my mind to, to, to wonder, you know, in light of church and encounter, and you could say like, like this church is a bit of a, it almost feels and for some of you who've been around for a long time, you get this too, but, but like a baby <laughs> that we have together. And it's awesome, and it's incredible. But I'm always nervous about how other people think about it, and I'll just be real with you. And I, and I, I need so badly <laughs> for somebody to not tell me that my baby is ugly. <laughs> and when, when people like show up, you know, and they're like, it's not really for me, or I don't really get it, or, or I don't know what you're talking about, or this, you know, you just talk about the same thing, you talk about Jesus all the time, and just give me some other help, or just something like that, just part of me thinks like, like, no, 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 what can I do to make you happy? I don't know about you, I have to check myself, and maybe whatever area of service, or volunteering, or work, or, or maybe it's with your kids, or your husband, your wife, just family members, neighbors, anything that you do for other people, or with other people. And anytime you feel that deep insecurity within you that says, I want to make you happy, I want to do right by you, just ask yourself that question. Who am I doing this for anyway? Am I here to serve other people? 
Am I here to serve myself? Or am I here to express this pure, unadulterated, undiluted, ultra-concentrated form of expressing our love, religion, back to Christ? I invite you to stand up and let's pray together. Let's ask God to give us the courage to answer the question honestly, authentically, and maybe for the first time, in a way that just points ourselves and others back to him. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus Christ, you're the one who came. And in your death and resurrection, Lord, you conquered sin and death. Uh, But God, there was so much that happened before that. God, forgive us for all of the times that we have taken your death for granted and ignored the words that you spoke in your life. Uh, God, forgive us for all of those, those moments of, of flippancy, Lord, where, where we think that maybe we can, we can do something to merit a little more favor from you, or that we have something even to offer back to you. God, we have only this, our gratitude. By your Holy Spirit, make that be a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice. In your name we pray, amen.